Tonight on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, cooking with the Daleks. Enjoy the recipe that protects so many species. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you can be so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess, and we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Welcome once again to another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The only podcast guaranteed that if you listen, you'll hear stuff that you've never heard before, at least in the past couple of days. In this episode, which is episode 469, it's Weird Book Day. Now, you might naturally assume... That every time you're on the show or you listen to the show or you're you're traveling through the etherwebs and you stumble across this silliness, every day is Weird Book Day here. This is weirder than ever Weird Book Day, and we're going to get into that, so let's get to it. We're in pandemic show mode still. Uh, it's been almost, almost almost over a year. We're done with stupid guy. We're dealing with smart guy at the head of the show now here in the lower 48. And because of it, uh, smart things are starting to happen. Lord knows. My God, shots are going into people's arms and things are starting to maybe get a little bit better. We'll find out. If stupid guy stays down where he's supposed to underground and and Groundhog Day is coming near. So when he sticks his head up and there might be what six more weeks of the pandemic. Is that how that works? Cam Cam. Is that how that works? I don't six know. More weeks. Sure. Six, six more weeks. Are you, you sure? You know, I'm I not. Mean, sure. I, no, I'm not sure of anything anymore. But stupid guy I, I, if, to if, keep if, his head underground. That's what I'm sure of. I I was just, I, I had been told that it, I needed to be standing outside of Bill Murray's house, and when he stuck <laughs> his head out, if I he saw his shadow. So so you guys got to be confused because I got play tickets. You know, oh. you know they're not refundable. Uh, you know, if only we could somehow get Bill Murray involved with this, I think we'd be in great shape. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how that one works, but um, on behalf of a grateful nation, I want to thank Bill Murray for all he's done for us. Uh, and if somehow he could just help help out just a little bit more by holding his head underwater, holding dumb guy's head underwater on Groundhog Day so that it doesn't pop up. And, Hopefully we can make something happen here. That would be wonderful. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do anymore about this. But you know, you just, you just, you just. Uh, thanks, Moderna. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. And 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 whatever. It's it's been one of those weeks. Uh, 
So how are you doing, Cam? <laughs> well, other than, you know, I'm now back online seeing if I can get a slight refund on my tickets. I'm doing pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm canceling my trip to Disney World. Just to you know, just canceling canceling everything and another six to eight to ten weeks of, of self-imposed isolation here in Area 51. Uh, no more UFO sightings. None of that shit going on. We're just hoping for the best. And so, so we we, we in the midst of all the other crap that's been going on for the past couple of weeks of stuff. I read a book this week uh, and it was one of those interesting books. And I, I'd like to take this chance to uh, introduce you to the author of said book, said book called Spirit Sight, Last of the Gifted. I'd like to take a chance to introduce Marie Paul. Marie, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, finally, huh? <laughs> we've we've had a couple of hiccups along the way uh, for the past week or so, and it was really nice of you to be patient with us, and and patient with technology, and patient with everything else, and and health history, and all the rest of that stuff. It's really nice to have you on the show. Um, usually, um, we don't usually have people whose bona fides include children's literature because this is not a children's lit show and when somebody threw one of your books at us and said this lady's done like 40 children's lit kids lit books a part of me just kind of held my breath and went what why are we expected to read this and then they said no 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 this is a young adult book and then I said to myself again we don't read we don't we, we don't do young adult books and then they went no 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 this is a young adult fantasy book and I went you're digging the hole really deep now <laughs> <laughs> and and I said to myself self I really trust the person who threw this book at me. So I'm going to read it. Well, turns out my trust was correct. Um, and we're going to start by saying uh, Spirit Sight, Last of the Gifted, is, is part of a two-part series uh, set in the 12th century. Uh, and somebody needs to be wrapped in the head for calling it a young adult book. Because people have this horrifying need to pigeonhole things. You need to be this kind of a writer. This needs to be this kind of a book. This needs to talk about this. We, we need to, when we discuss your book, it needs to be talked about this way. And that's crap. Uh, this is, this is a, a really interesting, intricate 
well-crafted, well-put-together fantasy novel that is intricate, interesting, well-crafted. I've said that like three times already, uh, so it must be true. Uh, isn't that the rule of three? Oh, no, that's comedy. I'm sorry. We're back on the Murray thing. Comedy, you say it three times, it's got to be funny. Uh, but I'm seriously, um, it it breaks the rules of virtually everything a young adult novel should be, but I can see why they'd want to call it that. I can see why young adults would like it, but I can see why anybody who's not a young adult would also really, really like it. So let's talk a little bit about what Spirit Sight actually is. Sure. I, I'm, I'm interested because, I, I mean, I have had a, quite a few people that are not young adults tell me they really liked it, but um, um, I, I think of it as a young adult book. Why? Well, the protagonists are both young adults. They're dealing with... Um, identity issues they're dealing with finding their place in the world and figuring out how to survive a war that has been i guess you could say visited on them by their elders they're not responsible for the war but they um have to deal with it and have to find a way through it which is kind of how i see young adults in the world today sort of <laughs> so um I teach, uh, I, in my other life that's not writing, I teach um, English as a second language, English as an additional language, we say. Um, and so a lot of the people that are in my classes, now I have adults in my classes, but they quite often talk about their kids and kids that have come from other countries that sometimes are war-torn or, you know, uh, have been in situations like that. And I guess when I... I discovered my heritage. I'm Welsh, uh, of Welsh descent. I am Canadian, right? <laughs> but my grandfather was Welsh and a Welsh speaker. And um, so I discovered this part of the history of Wales that I didn't know. And it just kind of resonated with me in terms of young people in the world today trying to make their way through wars that have not been there you know they, they don't really have a place in the war as a, as such and often there are conflicting allegiances right like um especially for people from other countries say living in canada where they've come they have their own heritage and they they want very much to stay you know to to keep that um to honor that right but they're also in a new country and they have to face um what we do you know like what what is what it is to be north american right today and how we live and what is important to us which is the situation that my young adults are in so um yeah i think of it very much as the story of two young adults attempting to make their way in the world um, but in many ways isn't that what any adult who is not a member of a ruling elite in a country that is at war is feeling i mean you're yeah. you're always in that in that position in that 
place of what am I doing here? Why? Why am I thrust in this position? And the feelings that your characters are feeling are in many ways very much universal. Yes, I, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Um, but I think the difference, too, is when you're an adult, you have a grasp on your heritage, a grasp on your culture that's a little different. So maybe you can weather the you know inputs of another new culture coming in on you um, in a different way because you have all of your rituals and all of your traditions and you've been doing it for long enough that um, you you sort of, I guess you can, what am I saying? You can do it in your sleep kind of, you know what I mean? So it's not difficult for you to bring in those new things. Whereas a it young yeah, whereas a, a young adult um, hasn't had that, you know, they've got a sense of what the heritage is, but they haven't they haven't had that longevity with it. And then they're faced with new ways of doing things, like especially Hugh, my my male character, the male young adult in the novel, um, who is very much pivotal in spirit sight. His he has been sent away to foster with an English family, right, an English lord, and he's. He's very close to them, but he's also very close to his own family back in Wales. And now he's kind of dealing with a war in which he's been sent back to Wales. He's going to have to fight somebody that he loves one way or the other. And I don't think that's necessarily a universal. Hopefully that's not something that's universal. You know what I mean? But but that can. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully we're not going to fight each other. Right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like. Um, I think that his his position, yeah, I think that if he was older, he could deal with that a lot better. Whereas he's right in the middle of who am I? What am I? What's important to me? Right? Who am I? How am I going to live my life? Where's my place? And then he's faced with these conflicting allegiances in this situation in which his world is suddenly um, at war. And it's not, it's something that has been brought upon them, upon him, and he has to just deal with it and find a way to do that. And at the same time, um, he has goals, you know, like he would like to be um, part of the Tele, the the group that is around his prince, you know, but at the same time, he, he's got these allegiances to Shrewsbury, the Lord of Shrewsbury and James, um, his best friend, who is English, and as a result, the enemy, right? And how is he going to reconcile those things? That was what was interesting for me. Another interesting point right there, because you brought up James, is one of the things you learn a little bit later in the book is that James is actually technically half Welsh. Yes. And so you have that. I I love that moment when you have that conflict without giving too much of the way of the story where Mm -hmm. Hugh and James are talking and James is brought up in an English, uh, uh, you know, family but he has Welsh blood within him, and Hugh is, you know, Welsh who's been brought, been raised amongst the English, and they're having this wonderful conversation where Hugh just says to them, "Hey, you know, you're part Welsh too, can't you understand?" And I think about every country that has ever had a civil war. Um, I live in one personally um, that that was many, 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 many years ago, but Mm -hmm. where you end up fighting people who are your family. And this this kind of rang very true in that sense when you're listening to that conversation to people 
who share the same blood but end up on the on opposite sides of a fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not their fight. You know? Yeah, it's really not yeah. their fight. It's like, you know, if and I think it, there's there must be an element of that always, you know, in any kind of conflict. Like, why are we fighting at some point? Right. But, um, yeah, that yeah. was what that was why I don't know. I guess that's why I wanted to write this book. It just had a lot of resonance with me. And at the time, my when I first was discovering this heritage that I didn't know I had thing, um, we had I had taken my kids with me. I'm a, I was a single parent and I took my kids with me to Wales because my grandfather was Welsh and he was dead by the time I was born. So I didn't know a lot about him. But um, I was trying to find out by kind of walking the walk, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, we didn't have a lot of uh, people left in the family who could have told me anything about him anyway. So I just had to kind of go on instinct, right? And my kids were with me walking around this ancient castle, this ruined thing. And like, we're from Canada. I'm from Western Canada. There isn't even anything like in terms of architecture and, you know, what I have seen in the cities here, like that's older than about 1880 something, right? There's uh, I know great, that feeling, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah there's <laughs> great other stone things out there, but... But in terms of the city where I live and the cities, the two cities that I've lived in, had lived in at that point, um, you know, it's, it's like what we think of as old is like 100 years old. And I'm in Wales and the stuff like I'm, I'm living in this, we're, we're staying in this um, sheep farm below us. There is this sort of stone ruin thing. And I asked the farmer who had rented us the cottage, I said, like, you know, what what is this? And like, it's really interesting. What is it? And what's it all about? And he said, oh, it's from about 1100. You know, and I'm like, like, really? <laughs> you just thought, well, that would make it, what, 900 years old? Like, you know, it was just kind of, it was like the that. Dif- the difference that we find in in our section of the world here mm-hmm. for age changes significantly when we go to Europe. Mm-hmm. And, and you add another zero to it, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I found that out the hard way when I traveled through Europe uh, years ago <clears throat> and uh, was just kind of, you know, amazed of, you know, going through New York City and we knocked down a building that's 80 years old because it's old. Uh, yeah. yeah. And 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 in London, um you know, a 300-year-old building is being renovated. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I'm going, yeah. it kind of makes no sense to me because that's not the way my mind understands the world. Yeah. Um, so, so. But anyway, I had my kids with me and we're walking around in this ruin. And the only thing, like in the Welsh castles, um, Wales is interesting, too, because there are the 13 big English castles that were built to subjugate the Welsh, right? And uh, we found our way into a couple of the ruins that are that were left from the um, Welsh princes themselves, which basically their their history ended in 1282, right, when this book is written. Um, and we're walking around this one old ruined castle, Dolwith Allen, and um, the kids are with me. And all we get, like, there's no tour guides or, you know, little cute shops or anything like that in these castles. They're, like, left. They're kind of, like, abandoned or whatever. And um, even though they're marked on the map and you can find them and so on, there's nobody there to show you around or tell you anything. But they have placards 
inside the castle so you can read about the history and we're walking around reading this history and um it was my kids reaction to that i guess that made me want to write this book you know so it's written from that perspective i guess because to me that's you know the people who we leave this world to are the people who have to deal with all the stuff that we're that we're leaving them right yep and this gave me the chance to explore how these two young people might respond to their world kind of metaphorically how i see young people today responding to our world um and all the different things that we're leaving them like you know environmental pollutions and uh the you know climate change you name it right all the things that we have done <laughs> that um, they're going to have to deal with so does does this series mark a change for you in moving from uh children's literature to uh, a different style of writing or are you going to continue in children's literature as well i well i i certainly would never turn away from anything you know if i if i think of writing something in the children's lit in the future i will right but yeah i'm i'm actually way more interested now having written a couple of novels in writing more um and possibly even um novels for more adult audiences in the fantasy. I, I, I like fantasy. Um, even with my really young kids' books, they were kind of fantastical. <laughs> anyway, the, um, I like writing fantasy. So I'm, I, and I do like writing novels, yeah. So I can see this is where I'm going to be for a while. Yeah, for sure. What, what, what was it that... Uh drew you f fantasy is is its own little weird realm yeah. uh that doesn't really i was gonna say that doesn't really go anywhere else it just doesn't <clears throat> say that as a science fiction writer right or reader reader um, and writer and writer yeah, like there's there's this thing about science fiction versus fantasy and all that but but um yeah and and I am definitely coming down on the other side of the fence, the fantasy side of the fence. But that's because, you know, I'm Welsh, right? And I was raised with a certain <laughs> tradition. I mean, I was I'm not sure that that's what it is, though. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I think it is. I was raised with a certain tradition of magical explanation, right? Um, you could be right there. Yeah. I, that was it's just it 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 occurs to me that I can explain magic. Um, in scientific kind of ways because I do write I have written a couple of science ki kids books too eh? so um, that that's fine with me in terms of I like science I'm not a scientist I wish I was kind of I, if I came back I, I'd do two I'd, I'd be two things if I came back if I could just come back twice one would be I would go into sciences for sure and the other one is I would be um, an archaeologist because those are kind of and you can kind of see what I'm getting at when I when mm -hmm. I these books, yeah, I think. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. There's fantasy, oh, yeah. but I'm I'm gonna mix in what's real because to me that's how the world works, right? Um, I can I can I can be thinking very scientifically, and I can still think that there are ghosts in the room helping me out. You know, <laughs> so it's a different mindset. What can I say? <laughs> you know? No. It's, it's, 
it's 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 like throwing it all in a blender mm. and you, it's going to come out differently every single time yeah um That's- and i love the fact that <clears throat> in finding your roots because of the way in which it occurred and the reasons that it did occur, these characters came to life. Mm-hmm. So my question then becomes, as you were wandering through Wales, mm-hmm. finding who you were how did these characters come to life for you um really it's it's more like uh they they are there and i'm just finding them do you know what i mean like it's i in some ways i feel like these characters are real characters from that time period i realized that there was nobody in wales who could actually you know transform or or control the minds of animals or you know actually see the future and all of that but there's certainly enough lore um that this type of thing uh would have been discussed at least or they would have been listening to poetry and they would have been listening to songs that uh, that very much were you know having mixing those ideas into the world that, that was. absolutely yeah yeah it's i just, mean I just, that I, lore runs deep within their traditions absolutely yeah. It does. And it's like it's like um, I was just walking around these old ruins and looking around in the hillsides and walking around in the in the mountains there. And um, I don't know, just seeing it, you know, it I sort of felt like when I was writing the first draft of this, it was very much just like copying it down um, from what I could see in my imagination, I guess, or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's that's that first scene the opening scene was almost the first thing i wrote i wrote that just after we got back from wales um because i free wrote a lot in those days and i was just free writing and i had just done it was an interesting mix of science and wit and weirdness science and myth um is that <laughs> I, had, I had actually i'm a journalist right so i had just done a very realistic story about a fellow here in east end saskatchewan who trains hawks and he rescues, you know, injured hawks and trains them and then puts them back out in the wild and whatnot. And I had gone down to East End and, you know, lived there with and watched him and, and interviewed him and all that. And I did a couple of, of articles about him and I did a CBC broadcast about him, uh, one, of, one of those talk tape things that they do. And um, and I was just, I don't know, I was free writing and out came this whole, whole you know, story of this boy who could who wanted to be able to control the minds of the hawk, because if he was going to fight in this war, it would help to be able to see the enemy, right? And you couldn't see, he could if he could control horses, that would be great, but it wouldn't help him see the enemy, because the horse would see the same thing the man on the back of the horse would see, pretty much. <laughs> but if he could get the mind of the hawk, if he could, you know, um, connect with the mind of the hawk, and use that in some way, control that mind, you know, to look at what he wanted to look at, then he could see the enemy coming. And then he could help people avoid the enemy, hopefully, or whatever, right? And, um, and that I just started to write that scene, that scene, 
so that would have been what 2006 2007 that scene was pretty much <coughs> what when i first wrote it down in my journal and it's pretty much i mean it's been rewritten a hundred times since then but <laughs> it's pretty much that same scene right and um i don't know it just those kinds of things happened and then I, at some point I looked at it and I went, you know what, I'm not a good enough writer to write this novel. And so I had to go back and take my master's degrees in uh, creative writing from University of BC, which was wonderful, a great experience. I'm really thrilled that they let me in. <laughs> and uh, it was very, you know, very, very useful to me as a writer and I grew a lot. And at that point I could tackle what this novel was really all about. So, it, you know, I grew a lot writing this novel. Um, and I don't feel as though I control it as much as it controls me. So. That, and that was going to be my next question. <clears throat> because you're dealing with a history you didn't know. Mm. Characters that were as real to you as a real family you didn't know. Mm -hmm. In a time period that was real. Yes, very real. Yeah. So you're 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 doing this wonderful blend of of reality, semi-reality, fantasy, mm -hmm. um, and 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 history, and these characters. God bless them. Uh, <laughs> talk to us. They talk to each other. Mm -hmm. They talk through you, but they talk to us. Uh, and they say some pretty amazing things. So so I'm guessing, and it's only a guess, mm -hmm. that these characters talked to you a lot. Yeah. About how this story was going to go, how they felt, how they wanted this story to happen how they wanted this story to, how they wanted to act and react with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot. And, and um, a lot of things that never made it into, into either of these books, <laughs> you know, that are in my journals that just are there because they're things that, that um, occurred to me at three o'clock in the morning or whatever and woke me up. So I had to write them down. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, they took on a life of their own for sure. But at the same time, you know, I'm not, I'm not all that um, new agey about that. I, I do think that there's a craft involved in writing too. So a lot of that stuff I couldn't include because it really didn't have a, it didn't belong in the story. But it was interesting. There, my uh, one of my professors, Brian Brett at um, at the UBC when I took my MFA, uh, used to say things like. Um, these are the things that peek out from the corners of the story, right? <laughs> you know, and like there, it's it's really good to do that. It's really necessary to do that. The fullness of the character has to kind of live with you when you're the author. Um, or me, when I, maybe it's not true for everybody, but it, it was true for me, especially with these books. They but, make the characters what they are, whether they actually make it into the book or not. That's right. That's right. And it's it was... I'm glad that I, I spent the time. I, if this was a this is a long term project, right? Like initially, I had to go back and get my entire MFA just to do this, and then I had to spend years and years doing it. And I kept getting this I kept getting the history wrong and having to re go go back and rewrite it because pieces of the history that I really wanted to be there 
uh, were different than I had thought they were. And the other thing too, is that weirdly enough, this time, like, okay, so from 1282 until sometime in the 1990s, um, the Welsh language was outlawed, like, or at least it wasn't spoken. It wasn't considered to be a, you know, real language. The Welsh were kind of considered to be the savages of the English literature field and so on. So um, even, even in like, in this, this particular time period from 1282 in like, or 1280 to, you know, about 1294 in there, um, there's a guy who kind of wrote the seminal book on the history of Wales. It's called the history of Wales, John Davies in his, in his history, which I, which was the first history I heard about. And the first thing I read when I was doing the research, um, I get to this point of 1280 and he says, he's got like three paragraphs in which he says, there is so much conflicting information here. I'm just going to skip to 1320. <laughs> and but but this is why, how can you do this to me because I need this history right so I mean putting this putting this together piece by piece and from in 1990 in the 1990s the Welsh got the right to use their own language again so they went um, you know in our the province of Quebec where they have the French language and it's the only province of Canada that you know is fully French uh, they're very protective of the French language, right? And the Welsh are very protective of the Welsh language. Now that they've got the right to use it again after 800 years, it's everywhere. So there's like, um, we when we were in Wales the first time, we actually saw signs on the highway that looked like somebody had gone out there with green paint and painted over them and then painted the white lettering back on in Welsh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, over the English version of this word and put it back on the sign in Welsh. Um, and the Welsh, like Welsh is first on the signs. Kids have to speak Welsh in the schools. Um, if you want a job in Wales, you better learn how to speak Welsh, right? It's like that, right? And um, so I actually went and took a Welsh language class. I'm now a kindergarten Welsh speaker. <laughs> because, you know, like it was like, it's like they were finding their own heritage while I was finding this book. And so a lot of research and a lot of like there's still archaeological digs going on there. They're still trying to find some of the things that were destroyed in 1282 by Edward I that are gone. Like there were there were 22 royal courts. They called them fleece in that were the royal courts of the, the House of Aberfra. And um, they're gone. They, they have one of them. They have been able to architect or archaeologically find one of these royal courts. And they know that there were 22. I mean, there are documents from there and things like that. But the actual physical place is gone, right? And even the castle, what really got me about, and I guess the reason why I, you mentioned before that it seems like this story really starts on something like page 40 or 50, um, because the beginning part of it takes place in one of those places that is now gone. And I just really wanted to get the sense of what what was really lost there. That's a huge loss when when like when Edward took over Wales and he made these great big castles to subjugate the Welsh, he changed. He took one abbey that was one of the abbeys of the Welsh princes of, of Llewellyn and he he disbanded like he literally had the monks take it apart, walk it seven miles down the road and put it back together in a new abbey. He renamed places. That had that had Welsh place names and he named them with English place names. Like he totally obliterated the House of Aberfraw forever, you know, kind of thing. There's there's actually a few of them left, but but basically the power of the House of Aberfraw is it kind of like the loss of Troy. 
you know, and like the, the, the Welsh of this time of 1282 actually could trace themselves back to Troy. It's really like that that I was kind of trying to get at, right? It's not so much the intricate, the intricacy as much as the loss, you know, of this world that was. There was a world there. There was a, a people who had a particular way of doing things. And they were completely removed from the face of the earth. Um, they, and, and Edward I said, I have exterminated the Welsh when this, in 1283 when he was finished. And uh, how wrong he was. Well, 800 years later, they bounced right back, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. so, and everybody was saying in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, Welsh is spoken the way it was spoken in 1282. Like it didn't evolve because it was underground that whole time. People were speaking it, like my grandfather, you know, who had obviously such a really thick Welsh accent because of some of the documents I found where people were trying to quote him and couldn't figure out what he was saying. <laughs> anyway, but like this, this language came bouncing right back. And um, now it's, I think it's up to about 25 people would, would claim to be for first language Welsh, Welsh speakers. But literally everybody who works in Wales must speak Welsh. That's like the way it is, right? Um, but just that that sort of, you know, what what is it that lets a people do that? If you if you are in a situation where people are telling you if you speak your language, we will cut your head off. <laughs> we won't just cut your tongue out. We're going to completely kill you. You know, so like don't speak it, right? Um, you can't stay in the city overnight. We've got these nice English cities with the walls around them now, and uh, if you're Welsh. Um, we'll let you in, but you can't do business and you can't stay overnight. You've got to leave at five o'clock, stuff like that, right, in their own land. It's very similar to to the uh, colonialism here in Canada that, that the First Nations faced here and the road allowance people, the Métis people went through this in my city, in Regina. All these things, like it might have been 800 years ago, but there's things still going on today that are very much like this. And you look at this people and how they came back, like I say, 800 years later, they're allowed to use their language again. And okay, they're going to use it with a vengeance, right? So, you know, how the scales tip, right? And tip back. It is an interesting passion that you bring to these stories. It's a passion born of your heritage, yeah. uh, as well as uh born of your storytelling desire as well well yeah and and like, in he in hearing you talk about it one can very easily see why in another life you would want to be you know someone who digs around old sites mm -hmm. looking as an archaeologist why that would be your interest instead <laughs> makes yeah. perfect sense to me well and it's it's like the the neat thing is that a lot of archaeological digs are going on still like from the 90s till now and they're finding things out about this period of history now that they can look at it in the light of day right from the 1990s on getting the right to look at it again and to explore sure. it completely and there's cutting edge books coming out like I don't know how, like I said, I don't know how many times I had to go back and rewrite something because somebody just discovered a piece of the historical um, 
you know, story that hadn't really been known before. They might have known it there, but it wasn't in the published documents, right? And now it's in the published documents. So I can see it because I'm on this side of the world trying to gather this research. And anyway, so eventually what I had to do in order to make sure is I had to hire someone whose expertise was this time period and make them read my book <laughs> and tell me what I got wrong. And I still had to make changes to it. Like the, even this year, like as we were publishing it um, and I was getting this historical editor looking at looking over my history, we were making changes to it. So, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting period of growth, I guess writing these two books so as <clears throat> as we're talking <clears throat> book two is now out in this series mm-hmm. and i'm about to dive into book two <laughs> <laughs> so uh chances are really good we are going to be talking about book two in the gifted series as well very shortly. So, but my next question really is, what's up next? Yeah. Um, well, as I finished book two, I realized that I, I still had some things I had to write about. So there is a book three. I'm, I'm working on it now. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah. How did I know this? How did yeah. I know this? Yeah. It just keeps evolving. You know, like this is like a, a real family where things happen. <laughs> you don't expect unexpected children occur <laughs> and yeah book three is is on the way i thought this was going to be one book and then i thought it was going to be just the two books and now it's three books so who knows they're not going to let the you only thing stop. well i was gonna i was gonna go counter you on that one dome because the only downside to writing a nice fantasy story in an actual fictional set setting and staying true to that fictional setting, which you're doing an amazing job. I kind of like compare it to having at 1282 being a partial tapestry and you looking at this corner where there's this big, huge hole and going, I'm inserting my family here. Boom. Here's Hugh and Kat. And I'm inserting them seamlessly into this tapestry so that the story is more complete. But at some point, that history is finite. And so that's the, uh, the only thing is that I look at is that we all know, because we can pick up a history book, that the hist and I'm assuming you're going to continue to stay true to the actual history yeah. and not deviate into another timeline, is that at some point the history is finite. So it'll be, I'm really interested to see how you squeeze these two wonderful characters' stories into a very finite period of history. Yeah, that'll, that's an interesting point. I'm going to think about that because that's really good. Um, cause like the gap, of course, there is a little bit known 1288. There's a little bit known in 1294. There's two kids that are in iron cages that we don't know a lot about. There's, um, a princess who, you know, lives to the age of 52, but nobody really knows anything about her. There's a lot of holes, you know, um, in this, there's like the tapestry, there's a lot of holes in the tapestry or the hole in the tapestry is like 30 years worth of hole. <laughs> like it's like, Oh yeah. A lot these of are, holes. These, <laughs> these are big, these are huge holes. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you've got, you've got like, you know, here's here, here's Llewellyn over here. Here's uh, David over here. 
but you don't you've got these big huge holes you know where you don't know where what happened between one to the other and then you don't know where you know Llewellyn's daughter Gwen you know what was her path she took before mm-hmm. she ended up in a monastery later in life mm-hmm. so well, yeah you know and, and the, did she really <laughs> yeah and again did she because we don't really 100% know that I mean it's from reading because I did a little research not as much as you did not even remotely yeah. close and yeah we don't really know it's we 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 can only go by what Longshanks and his his side of the story it's like the the old saying you know history is written by the winners That's you know right. Longshanks is going to sit there and say yeah I was kind and benevolent and I sent her off to a monastery yeah right yeah we don't know for certain yeah, like there's there's moments when you do when you get something very certain and then there's all this time like but what about the nine years before this happened? <laughs> you know, between this thing and this thing, there's like years worth of and you know, people's lives, right? Oh yeah. But a lot hap as we can a lot happens in a year as we've seen. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Good lord, the answer to that is indeterminable Mm -hmm. but if anybody can figure it out it is our castle hopping friend (laughs) who is now working on book three of an indeterminate number of books about an indeterminate history that she is very slowly piecing together in a tapestry of works that began with spirit sight then went to water sight Mm-hmm. He's working on the third book now, and we will be sure and have her back for more. Our guest tonight has been Marie Powell, and it has been an absolute joy to listen to her talk about her children. Thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight, Marie. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Not too many people say that about this show, but <laughs> indeed it has been. And we hope to have you back again. <laughs> real soon. That sounds super great. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com and don't forget to try the Watt sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp and a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie shared pain as lessons, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody.
That sounds good. That sounds perfect.